Welcome to another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources, where we shine light on what's going on in your environment. I'm your host, Amy Leveringhouse. And I'm your co-host, Erin Garrett. And today we are here with Chris Evans, Extension Forestry and Research Specialist, and he is going to talk to us about early spring wildlife. So welcome, Chris. Well, thank you very much. I'm excited. Well, it's getting to that time of year where we're getting ready to go go outside. We're itching to get outside. The weather's turning. The sun is shining. So tell us what wildlife we should start looking for this spring. All righty. So I, I do love this time of year, right? So I think as you transition from this dormant period and you've got uh, all this kind of everything's is quiet. There's a lot of animals that just aren't doing much. And then it's kind of this awakening time, right? And especially that early season where it's not quite yet spring, I think that is to me is one of the most exciting times. What I wanted to talk about was a couple different wildlife um, species or groups that you can really observe at that transition period when it's really still kind of winter, but almost spring. And so to me, uh, woodcock displaying are pretty awesome. Frogs, salamanders as well, kind of starting to wake up at this time of year, really is some of the earliest um, signs of spring that that I really look for at this time of year. Awesome. So let's dive right in. Let's start um, with the woodcock. So what can we expect to see them doing um, at this time of year? Okay. So have either of you ever seen woodcock? I have not. Not in person, no. Okay. Any videos, many cool videos. Sure. So they are, you know, they're a funny little bird. They're a shorebird, but they are a shorebird that lives in the forest. So it's kind of weird that way, but they're, they're kind of comical, right? They're these fat little birds with these long bills. And in the springtime, um, in early, early spring, even right now, I've already seen them this year, um, they are displaying. So the males come out and they fly out of the dense, thick forest where they live and they feed and they fly into open grassy areas. And the male has this I would say just a hilarious kind of spring display. So they they make a funny little noise. It kind of goes meep, meep, like that, a little pink noise. So the males will strut around right at dark or, or just after dark making this noise. And then they fly into the air in this huge circle, right? So they fly, their wings make a funny little dee-dee-dee-dee sound like a little wing whir. And they'll fly in these circles that kind of go bigger and bigger and then suddenly get smaller and smaller and then spiral down to the ground really fast, land, and then start their little bouncing bob and it's going meep, meep, meep again, again, and again. It's really, really funny, but uh, it's it's literally like the first one of the first wildlife observations that you'll see in the spring. I love that. I have shown my students videos of that display. And what I've learned is they... They take off and they land at this almost the same exact spot, supposedly. That's what I've read about about woodcock. So I think that's that's kind of neat. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. We uh, my kids and I, so we're lucky enough to have woodcock displaying on our property every um, you know every spring, and so we often will go kind of hide in the the edge of the little thick uh, fence fence row and then sit on buckets and just wait for it to get dark. And then you'll see them flying in and we'll watch them do that. It's been really, really kind of a fun tradition that every year we look forward to it. So is it like a special area where you guys are watching for them? Like where people could try to look for that type of an area in their woods? Is it an open area? 
so even though they live in the woods, you know, they're a, they're a forest animal, um, they, they display in really low grass open areas. And so the best place to look for them would be those kind of habitats where you have short grass um, kind of open next to really dense thick woods. And so I think that's the best. And, and I've seen them, you know, not just where I'm at, but kind of across Illinois, you'll see them through there, but you kind of want to key in on that particular type of habitat. I had a, a forester ask me about, because I think, do they nest on the ground? They do. And I he was finding these ground nests and he was describing what the eggs look like. He finally took a picture and and we were, you know, I don't know, kind of figuring it out and deciphering what it actually was. And it was woodcock, little woodcock nests that he kept seeing nice. there and everywhere. So they're a, they're an interesting species, right? So they they like this kind of early forest. So a lot of our a lot of our our forest wildlife or birds, especially, you know, like mature forest or or whatever. But woodcock really like this very young forest, small diameter trees, thick trees in there together. So it, it is one that thrives kind of in a reforestation stage or a place where maybe there was a harvest and then you have this kind of thick undergrowth. Um, that's really what they, they like. And so it's neat to see them um, in an area like that. Love that. What other signs of spring wildlife could our listeners look for um, this time of year? Well, one of the other things that I, I like looking for at this time of year really would be getting out and looking for antlers. So uh, as I'm sure you all know, you know, deer shed their antlers about this time of year. And it's just a fun thing to go to, to look out and, and, and just try to find them. You know, I've got buckets of those things at my house, but it's, it's still, it's always exciting when you, when you come across one and you see it laying there. Right. It reminds me of my rock collections when I was little, you've got buckets of it already, but you always find new things. You have to add to it. Right. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember, I know, I think it was last year or a couple of years ago, I was hiking out at Dixon Springs where you are, Chris, and um, found some antlers and it was pretty cool. Just like it was February, I think, too, and just a different time of year. And I wasn't really expecting to find anything super interesting, but there were things still to see and observe. Um, so it was really cool to just kind of be out at a different time of year and, and still be able to make those different observations. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And honestly, like as the year goes on and things green up and plants start growing, it gets harder and harder to find them. So really this kind of early, early spring when nothing else is growing, they really stand out. And so it's really the best time to, to locate them. We had some shed hunting experiences that we used to lead and kids would try to find them when we would find them. And sometimes we would find pears, which was a really super exciting thing. And we had another event where someone had brought their shed collection and they had multiple pairs of the same deer year after year. So you could just tell that it was from that same deer. And that was pretty, that was pretty impressive. They spent a lot of time, um, you know, scouting those, those deer, that deer herd. And I mean, finding that had to take a long time. <laughs> Oh yeah, some people, really lucky. <laughs> yeah, some people get really, really into it. You know, they just they gear up and they spend hours and hours in the in the you know the woods looking for sheds this time of year. It's really neat. So we also mentioned at the beginning of the pod that spring brings a lot of sounds right through the winter. Um, our landscape is a lot quieter, 
So birds start calling, frogs start calling. So what are the ones that we're starting to hear in the early spring? Sure. There's there's a handful of kind of the earliest ones out there um, that as soon as it warms up and, you know, snow starts melting, you get a little bit of, you know, water in these vernal pools and things, they'll start calling. And so to me, there's kind of four really early ones, maybe five. Um, spring peepers are the earliest of all, right? I think so. They, they come out and even sometimes in December on warm days, you'll hear them calling. Uh, but you can also get chorus frogs. Um, you can get wood frogs where, where if you're in a place where they're at. And then in a certain places in Illinois, you can get my favorite, which is crawfish frogs. So all of those will call, you know, really, really early. And then as spring progresses, um, you'll start adding the other native frog species that we get. So you talked about vernal pools, Chris, and tell us about the importance of those vernal pools and about, you know, like you talked about the moisture, the snow melt, that sort of thing in um, the lives of, of those early frogs. Sure. So, you know, a vernal pool just means it's a spring pool. It comes up when it's wet and then it dries down. And, and really the big importance of vernal pools are that they're fishless. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of frogs, um, you know, will breed, almost all of them will breed in, in ponds or pools, uh, but there's a lot of predation when there's fish in there, right? Fish will predate on them. And so these vernal pools that come up and go down provide a habitat that allows um, for reduced predation, allows habitat in, in different places, and just allows a lot of these wildlife to thrive in, in an environment where they otherwise would have a hard time. So they are very, very important that way. And and adding kind of, um, you know, these wetland habitats, these temporary wetland habitats is something that uh, is one of the best things you can do to kind of enhance wildlife habitat on your land. We, uh, we're we very fortunate at our house too. I mean, I really, I really like our place because on top of the woodcock, we also have a lot of um, frogs calling. And in fact, I do want to share an audio with you all because a few years ago, it was so deafening at my house, the full chorus of frogs that I had to uh, go out there and actually record it. I literally just walked out into my backyard and, and recorded this just so I could hear it. So let's see if you all can hear this. So you should be able to hear in there spring peepers. You should hear cricket frogs, um, uh, chorus frogs, as well as the real loud snore in the background. So those are the crawfish frogs. That's a great description. The snore in the background. <laughs> yeah, it is. And so the crawfish, I don't know if you've all ever seen crawfish frogs, but they're absolutely my favorite frog out there. They, um, they're almost, they spend almost all their life underground, right? They live in burrows, crawfish burrows or other animal burrows, and they feed underground. Uh, but they're a big frog. I think they're the second biggest frog we have outside of bullfrogs. Um, and they kind of come up to the surface and then early, early spring like this when it's just starting to warm up on wet nights, they'll literally call from those little crawfish burrows. They'll just be on the top of those calling. And it's just this loud guttural snore. And it's really, really wild. And then eventually they'll they'll hop their way over into ponds and then and breed and then make their way back. And so it's always a treat when you, you can actually find one above ground because, you know, most of the time they're just not an option to see them. But a neat frog, big frog, spotted, um, um, just really a, a cool looking animal. And I've heard, and I've never tested it or seen it personally, but I've heard that since they live so much of their life underground, they're actually not very good jumpers. When they try to jump, they just flop around, right? Hmm. I was going to say, I wonder what that 
It's an interesting adaptation for a frog to spend most of its life underground. I don't know. I wouldn't have guessed that. Like, what is it? Yeah, I mean, I... really that heavily predated that it just needs to hide? I I think it just beats on underground insects, you know? I don't know. It's just its own little special niche. That's really cool. Those sounds and that chorus that's happening... Did you do you find at your house or when you're outside that 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 happens throughout the entire day? Is it typically in the morning, in the evening, kind of like those um, daybreak, day day's end times? When when can we hear those? I think typically morning, evening, and even well into the night, um, you'll hear those. Although I think it sometimes they'll get started up. And I was out just yesterday here doing some work in the field. And the peepers were calling, and it was like 11.30 in the morning, right? So I think you can kind of get them any time of the day, but that full-on chorus, um, early evening, early night, I think is the the best. And a lot of times you'll even see them, um, especially right after a rain. You know, if you get a hard rain or something, then they just they wake up right then. This might be a silly question, but what are, are they calling? Like, is it mating time, and that's why they're calling? Are they territorial or, you know— what's their they're getting out um in the springtime so they're emerging um they're just you know telling everybody that they're there (laughs) yeah no it's the males so the males call and i think it is both to try to attract females but also set up some level of a territory right and i think Mm -hmm. um and it, it you know it's really this time of year when they're starting to mate right that's when they're territorial and that's when they're trying to find their females and so it is that and um if you see them calling you're you're looking at the males for sure. Yeah. And it's it's wild when they call, right? They kind of inflate those little sacks and so the little balloons on their on their heads that way or on their throats calling. So it looks weird that way, but it's uh it can be ear piercingly loud. So I'll say be careful catching them and keeping them in a terrarium in your house because they will continue to call. Are you speaking from experience? I am, yes. <laughs> yep. I nearly got kicked out of my dorm because I kept a bunch of chorus frogs one time. <laughs> Pockets full of frogs. That's right. Awesome. <laughs> what other amphibians can we find that are on the move um, during the spring? Well, the other ones would be salamanders. Um, we know we have a lot of different salamanders uh, in Illinois, but really early, early spring, I would want to highlight the mole salamanders. So mole salamanders, it's a big group. There's six or seven different species, and they're some of our biggest salamanders. They're all in that genus Ambistema. And so there's like the true mole salamander, but then there's also some of the ones that most people are familiar with, tiger salamanders, spotted salamanders, marbled salamanders. They're, um, they all, they're called mole salamanders because they burrow and they live underground, um, but then they come up to breed, right? And so uh, they're really kind of big, heavy, uh, thick salamanders, really, really um, often colorful, weird patterns. And so they're beautiful. But in the uh, in the early spring, um, sometimes even um, when the snow is on, they'll they'll make their way over to um, pools or ponds, and then start breeding. And so early early spring like this, you can um, you can either look in these edges of these ponds, or you can look in like wet depressional areas in forest or under logs with wet soil, and you can often find um, you know the marbles or spotted salamanders, or if you're lucky, tiger salamanders, uh, which can even be in prairie situations, right? Okay, I went on a deep dive yesterday because I did not know much about that the salamander life cycle, and I did not know they look like little 
baby axolotls when they're little with the little external gills. Can you talk a little bit more about salamander development? Because I had no idea. My mind was blown. Sure. So, you know, they're, they're, um, they, when they lay their eggs and they, in the spring, they can lay anywhere from some of the smaller mole salamanders can lay 50 to a couple hundred eggs. And then even tiger salamanders or the bigger ones can almost go to a thousand. And so they start out as a, as a traditional tadpole, right? Just like, um, you would see with a frog, but then, yeah, they do, they do slowly metamorphose and develop into, um, basically it looks like an adult. But a lot of times they'll maintain external gills uh, at that stage and then live kind of as a, a waterborne adult for a while until eventually they kind of reabsorb those gills and then become more terrestrial. Sometimes that takes a long time. Sometimes they'll stay for, you know, a year or more in the um, that kind of semi-adult or whatever you want to call it, juvenile life stage um, before going. And sometimes it's a little quicker. And there's even populations of some of these mole salamanders that kind of maintain themselves as the juvenile stages um, and then permanently stay in ponds. Interesting. I was fascinated. There's a lot, oh. there's a lot of videos out there if any of our listeners are interested in watching. I don't know why I never deep like did a deep dive on that before. So really, really interesting. Oh, it, it is neat. It's uh, just the whole, these whole mole salamanders, they're so big, you don't, and they live underground. One of the best times that I've found to see them actually is a hard, hard spring rain. When it's really, really raining, you can literally drive through kind of low forest and, in you know, roads that go along a forest edge and you can find these crossing the roads. So it's really neat. I did try to keep them as pets one time as well. I caught a couple of marbled salamanders and put them in a terrarium. And I will say they're the, those, the ones I had particularly were the most boring pets because they lived underground. So all we had was this kind of wet terrarium and you could never see them. You had to go digging around to find them. So it was, it was kind of a, a letdown. So, so these guys are going up They're They're living terrestrially as adults during the kind of winter and the off seasons and then they make their way down to the pools to lay eggs and is that what i'm understanding yes so a lot of times they're underground or under the leaf litter or okay. somewhere in in wet forest or even wet prairies in the case of a tiger salamanders yeah and then they migrate into pools or ponds um, or even just really flooded forest on some cases mm -hmm. um, to breed and then make their way back and so it is kind of a, a a short-term migration, I guess you would call it, or just a movement into a different part of their habitat. Yeah, that's neat. I really haven't seen that too many salamanders in my lifetime, really. I, but I also haven't looked, you know, looked for them, targeted, trying to find them and going out at the, you know, the right time of year and the right place at the right time of the year. Sure. I think they, I mean, and they're, they're indicator species, right? too because they have such sensitive skin and they can kind of uh they they kind of i don't know survive on high in high quality areas so if you don't find a lot of salamanders there might be the habitat might be off or that sort of thing that's what i've heard i don't know if that there's any truth or science behind that yeah you know there there's um there's whole groups of salamanders now not the ambistomans, not the mole salamanders but the plethodon salamanders okay they are lungless so they do all of their breathing you know through their skin completely cutaneous respiration it's called and so just because that skin has to be so porous and so sensitive that you're right they can be sensitive to pollutants 
mm-hmm. uh, or other issues for sure. Um, and you know, there's if you're interested in finding salamanders, we have salamanders in a lot of different habitats, right? So you can find a lot of them even in dry forests just by flipping over logs and and things like that. There's quite a few salamanders that live exclusively in streams, you know, and are just in moving water. And then there's the the mole salamanders, which you know you would look for ponds and and wet forests and places like that. We even have like the the newts, which is a salamander, right? Which has that eft stage. I don't know if you've seen those with the little red, kind of warty salamander that has a whole time when it's totally terrestrial and walking around, and then it goes back into the the um, the ponds. So they're they're a fascinating group of animals for sure. I know one of the best experiences I had when I worked as a a naturalist leading kids on field trips is it was a really rainy, it was a rainy day, um, but we were still outside. And uh, this was in Minnesota and we had wetland, prairie, and forest that we walked through and we were walking and along the path, we found just a, a tiger salamander in the middle of the path. And it was the most exciting thing for all of the kids to see because it was huge and it was yellow and it was just, it was so cool. Um, we all got the chance to take a closer look at it. And I feel like they have like the cutest little smile if you look at them the right way. And it's just adorable. So I, I always remember that whenever we talk about salamanders, that was an, an awesome, awesome field trip day. Wow. Good deal. Yeah. That is special. All right. Well, as we wrap up today, I think hopefully all of our listeners can take away what a special experience and time it is to get out this time of year, February, early March, as things are starting to wake up. As people are going out and finding things, um, do you have any recommendations for places where they can share their observations and maybe other people can see what they're finding and get some tips on where to go see different wildlife? Oh, sure. Absolutely. You know, I always love sharing observations of any kind of wildlife or plants on iNaturalist. I think that's a great place. It can also help you um, identify stuff if you're unsure what it is. And so just, you know, taking a picture of it and putting it on there. um, And then you can also just take a look and see what else has been found in your area. And that really helps kind of figure out what to do and how to record your observations in terms of uh, like where to go and understanding where to go, uh, you know, there's a lot of public land in Illinois. You can always observe wildlife. Just check your regulations, right? So some um, some places you may not um, be allowed to go off off of trails. So you want to be careful with that. You certainly don't want to collect anything from nature preserves or anything like that too, just because of the legality. Um, so make sure you understand what you can and can't do on public land, um, ask permission on private land, things like that. And with, you know, for example, for hunting antlers or looking for deer antlers, you're not allowed to take antlers from state parks or nature preserves, but you are from other DNR land. Um, and then other properties like federal land, you generally are unless it's a refuge. But the main thing is just just make sure anything you're doing is is you know legal and allowed or you have permission. Other than that, yeah, get out there and explore and, and spend, you know, some time in the woods seeing some unusual sights this time of year. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Chris, so much for sharing about early spring wildlife. And now we've come to the time uh, during this podcast where we all share our special spotlight. So this is where we share what uh, a really cool thing that we've seen in nature um, this past month. So I'll start with you, Erin. Would you like to share your special spotlight first? Sure. I have just a couple signs of spring. Like Chris, yesterday I went outside. It was the middle of the afternoon. 
Um, and I, I popped outside and I heard the spring peepers and I, it just kind of hit me because it's the sound, right? That I haven't heard for a long time and it, boom, it was there. And so, um, already, you know, they're out and, and making sound. But another observation for me is we moved last year. And so this is our first spring in our new house. So we're seeing the new landscape as it changes. And I had no idea there were like a ton of daffodils coming up in our yard where we thought it was just lawn and there's like whole rows of daffodils. And we've already had some blooming for two weeks already, which is just crazy. So that's just kind of been exciting to see the surprises we didn't know were there um, when we moved in and just kind of get to uh, make those observations. Awesome. That's fun to see things brand new. What about you, Chris? So I've got two as well. So just to go on our early spring theme here, um, another thing I really look for in spring uh, would be early flowering trees. And so in my neck of the woods, the most kind of earliest um, flowering tree we have um, would be an American elm. And so I did get out yesterday when I was hiking around and we do have American elm um, trees in bloom. This time of year, the red maples, their buds are, are expanding. And so it, it's always uh, very, very exciting to see that. And I always get try to get pictures of the first flowers and all, all that. So that's one of my observations. Uh, the other one I'll just highlight would be that for the first time, we found uh, flying squirrels by our house. We have never seen those uh, until this year. So my son went out on our front porch and um, in the evening and sure enough, found our front tree scurried away and then jumped and, and sailed away was a flying squirrel. So it's the first time we found one actually at our on our property. So that was super exciting. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Uh, we used to watch them at my uncle's house in Wisconsin and we'd watch them at night. The flying squirrels go by and it was so cool. So that's really special, Chris. Chris, you got the spot with your house. You are in the right place. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> All right, well, Amy. I, I will share um, my uh, observation is kind of wrapping up um, late winter observations. So I am from Western Illinois, right on the river. And we are at the end of our eagle season, um, eagle watching season up here. And um, I took a friend of mine out to, we were on this kind of account for eagles that day. And um, she's a new bird watcher. So she had her her book, you know, her field guide book that she was like marking off her life list of birds. So we ended up seeing 75 eagles that day. She was just couldn't even believe it. Again, I think it's one of those things where when you go out and you start looking, nature is there, right? Nature is happening and it's there. And um, she just couldn't believe we saw so many eagles. And I feel like in my lifetime, I was born in 1980 and I just feel like you know, obviously the population of eagles has increased over my lifetime. And now we do, we see them on the side of the road. We see them flying over. We just, we see them, we saw several nests, at least a half a dozen plus nests um, that we have along the river over here. So it was really exciting to see that. And she got to mark off a few other birds that she had on our list that same day. So, so late, late, I guess, late winter eagle watching. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Nice. 
Well, again, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today on our Spotlight on Natural Resources podcast. This has been another episode. Check us out next month where we will talk to Dwayne Friend and he will cover tornado trends. University of Illinois Extension.